0: Lord Jesus, as you fed your disciples so long ago, would you feed us again this day? Come, Holy Spirit, speak into us resurrection life. In the name of Christ do we pray, and only by his name do we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. We are deep into resurrection season now, celebrating the risen Lord and his victory over sin and death, trying to live into resurrection life. We've been saying our hallelujahs a lot, if you notice. That's the call of Eastertide. In this season of Eastertide, we are following closely beside the risen Jesus. And what does our Lord choose to do as a follow-up to his most amazing miracle yet, the resurrection? I mean, how do you... What do you follow that up with? I mean, think about that. After being raised from the dead, what does Jesus choose to do? Does he continue to defy expectations? Well, yes, absolutely. He's really good at that. If it were me, I would want to go back and put it in Pilate's face, maybe the Jewish leader's face. Ha, I did it. I told you. I'm the Messiah. You know, prove them wrong, perhaps. Maybe rain down a little judgment upon them for all the ills that had occurred to me. That's not how Jesus chose to spend his time in his brief days before his ascension. He invested, he continued to invest in his disciples. He continued to teach them. He continued to disciple them. He continued to prepare them for what was next. That's how Jesus chose to spend his time, building into them as he had before. Now, uh, hmm, that's not to say these episodes of encountering Jesus post-resurrection aren't uh, a little weird and odd. Um, They are. They really are, because the pattern tends to be, at least in a few of these, Jesus sort of appears out of thin air. He lays down the heavy, right? kind of reveals himself, blows their minds, and then disappears. (laughs) Think of the road to Emmaus story. It's a little like God in these post-resurrection stories is almost playing hide-and-seek and and cat and mouse in these various uh, post-resurrection passages. Now, once we hit John 21, 1 to 19, which is where we're going to be today, this is the third Jesus sighting by the disciples post-resurrection. John mentions that. So let's get into John 21, 1-19. to There's two basic parts to this. Part 1 is verses 1-14. to We'll delve into that first, obviously. And the second part is 15-19, to his conversation with Peter. That's the second piece. The passage begins saying, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. And later on in verse 14, it even makes the point. And this was the third time Jesus revealed himself. It's kind of like a bookend. It ends as it began. God revealing himself is a big theme in the Gospel of John. We're always dependent upon God to reveal himself, who he is as the risen Lord. He must make that first move. He must step towards us. This is God making himself known to us in relationship. That's where revelation that term comes from it's God lifting the veil so that eyes can see. Okay, some post-resurrection reveals. Well, in John twenty, there's a few. Uh, remember when Jesus speaks Mary Magdalene's name? She thinks he's, he thinks she thinks he's the gardener until he says Mary. And she says, oh, "Rabbi, it's you." So that's one post-resurrection reveal in John twenty. Another one when he shows his disciples his hands and feet and his sides. And then later on, another one, is when inviting Thomas to see and touch his wounds. And now we have this story of God revealing himself. So big theme in John, God revealing himself to us, making himself known. Now when we encounter Peter and some of the other disciples in this passage, they're in Galilee. When you see Sea of Tiberius, that's synonymous with Sea of Galilee. So they're in Galilee. Why? Well, Passover is now finished. Okay? There's no real reason to stay in Jerusalem. That's one possible explanation, but I think there's a better one. Uh, in Mark 14 and 16, Jesus had told the disciples after he had risen that he would go ahead of them. Guess where? In Galilee. That's presumably why they're there, waiting, looking, probably wondering how and when they'll see Jesus again. They seem to have been sitting around, unsure of what to do until Peter decides to go fishing and the others come along. Now, here's an observation, and this is for all of us. Notice when the disciples don't know what to do, uh, where do they go? They go fishing. They go back to their old way of life, okay? Peter returns to the nets that he had previously left to follow Jesus. And, I mean, a brother's got to eat, right? That may be necessity, may be part of it too. The text doesn't speak to their motivations here, um, but here they are again in the world of boats and nets and fish. And I think this speaks to all of us. When we don't know what to do, when we're waiting on the Lord, we just return to what? What we know. We go back to what we know. We go back to those old places. And I'm just saying right or wrong. I'm not pistol whipping the disciples. I'm not getting on Peter here. When we're unsure, it's just like human nature. When we're unsure what to do, when we're waiting on God to speak and to act, we tend to return to our old ways and to what we know. This is how we tend to play the waiting game. So Peter and others, Peter, I'm going to go fishing. A few others say, great, we'll join you. And they spend all night fishing. They fished at night because the fish couldn't see the nets then. So that was the best time to do it. That was their custom. So they fish all night and they get nothing. Now this story should sound a little familiar to at this point. Like, wait a minute, haven't we been here before? Yes, we have. Until early in the morning, at, at dawn actually, A stranger calls out from the shore. And the text says this stranger is about 100 yards off. So that's a pretty good distance, about 100 yards away. And he says this, children, or friends, but children is a better, is is more accurate. Children, haven't you any fish? Now, Jesus doesn't tend to call the disciples children. This is unusual, and what's the meaning of children? I mean, the best rendering I can give you is like a modern-day UK rendering. Imagine someone saying, you know, lads, have you caught any fish? You know, it's a little bit like saying lads. And the point is there, it's a term of familiarity. It's a term of endearment. It's a spiritual father speaking to his flock. Now, let's think about this for a minute. You've worked all night, end of your workday, it's dawn, uh, And some stranger calls out from the shore calling you children. Now, don't you think this greeting would have sounded a little unusual, a little odd coming from a stranger on the shore at at dawn? I mean, it's just kind of weird. And let's remember, they're 100 yards off. So even if you've got 20-20 vision, which I do not, even if you had 20-20 perfect eyesight and dim light, it's going to be hard to tell that's Jesus. 100 yards is a pretty good distance. So they didn't immediately, they're not able to identify him. So, I mean, if I'm in the story at this point, I'm one of the disciples, who is this person who's addressing us with familiarity and such warmth? Like, who is this? Odd. Color me intrigued at this point. And Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, says, throw out your nuts on the right side. There's there's fish there. And for whatever reason, I see the scene this way. I see Jesus making breakfast, kind of tending to the fish and throwing out this phrase offhandedly, kind of casually like, uh, throw out your nets on the, on the right side. There, there's fish there. I don't know why. That's just how I picture it. Now, have you noticed in the Gospels, the disciples never catch a fish without Jesus' help? <laughs> now, is this because they're just crummy fishermen? They're just terrible at what they do? No, it's not that they're so unskilled. These are specific instances that are recorded to show us, I think, one, that Jesus is supreme over nature. It's like him calming the storm when they're in the boat. That's one story. But there's another issue. I think the disciples are learning some radical dependence upon Jesus Christ. What they have, the fruit of their labor, their work, a gift from God. Now, this had to be so frustrating. You work, and again, isn't this story familiar? Haven't we been here before? It it harkens back to Luke 5. Uh, You work, work, work all night long, and you get nothing, nothing. And the Jesus, the carpenter, not a fisherman by trade, gives a word, and boom, huge catch. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make here, none of us usually desire dependence. It's usually foisted upon us, right? But Jesus seems to remind us at every turn that what we have comes from God's hand, okay? And they get a big haul. They do cast their nets on that side. They pull in 100-plus fish, and it's a huge haul. This is more than what they need. This is more than just mere provision. This is a symbol of abundance, okay? Abundance. It echoes the wine surplus at the wedding in Cana. Remember that in John 2, first miracle? Jesus turns water to wine into a few hundred bottles of wine, the equivalent of a few hundred bottles. Reminds me of the leftovers of the bread and fish at the feeding of the 5,000. Which How cool is this, by the way? A little aside, uh, the initial offering of what was brought Uh, to Jesus to bless, and actually the leftovers, the leftovers were more than what was even initially brought. Isn't that cool? So their catch, my point here, is more than is needed, It's more than enough. Okay, The catch is a picture of abundance and graciousness on the part of Jesus. It's another miracle. And let's remember Jesus' original call to the disciples was, I'm going to make you fishers of what? I'll make you fishers of men or fishers of people, we can say. I will make you fishers of men. Mm. Big, big thing. I think a missional point is being made here. Okay, This is a living picture of what happens when we depend on Jesus in mission. We're not just talking about purely fish here, are we? This is a picture of something. It's more than that. There are souls that need saving, and they remember this. They remember Jesus saying, I will make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of people. This is a throwback to their earliest call, okay? What a bounty Jesus brings, as we see here. Now, something about bringing in the fish, something clicks for them at this point. They bring in that bounty of fish, something clicks in their mind, the haul of the fish uh, triggers their recognition, perhaps reminds them of maybe that other miraculous catch in Luke 5. At this point, I would be thinking, this is vaguely familiar. I think I've been here before. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how John refers to himself in his own gospel, recognizes Jesus, okay? And after the catch, he tells Peter. Well, Peter, predictably, I would say, kind of flips out. Here's this, casts himself into the sea, swims ashore. Uh, he leaps in. He's the first to meet the Lord, which is beautiful. There's something really wonderful about that. And they arrive on shore, and get this. Jesus is ready to play host to them yet again. Here's Jesus. He's made breakfast for them. I mean, isn't that lovely? I love that. He's made breakfast for them. He invites them to bring their bounty. These fish are their offering, in a sense, and he added to what he's already cooking. We have no idea how the bread and the fish got there. You know, the, the appearance of the food is about as mysterious as Jesus being there. It's just like, and there it is. The text mentions here, it's interesting, a charcoal fire, which you could look at this and just go, that's just a stray detail. They put it in there for color. Mm, I don't think so. This is a hint to us of the conversation that will follow with Peter. The last time Peter was beside a fire was when he betrayed Jesus three times in John 18. So this is an echo. Last time we saw Peter by a fire, he was betraying Jesus. This time by the fire, redemption is afoot. Jesus has other ideas to put into play. This is foreshadowing. So he fixes them breakfast, and it's interesting Evidently, they're silent. He revealed himself, and they know it's him, but it seems they eat in silence. There's no dialogue recorded here whatsoever until he speaks to Peter. But they know without a doubt, hey, this is the risen Lord. Though no one, it says, though no one dared to ask. So they know it, but there's just this, it's it's a strange scene. And perhaps Jesus' identity is made all the more clear when they break bread together. Maybe it takes them back, reminds them of the feeding of the 5,000, the fishes and the loaves, fish and loaves, excuse me, syntax. So that's part one, okay? That takes us to part two, verses 15 to 19. And it says, And after they finished breakfast, again, presumably in awkward silence, I don't know, uh, Peter speaks, or Jesus speaks to Peter, and the way you need to see this is this is like a story within a story, okay? It's nested right in here. It's almost like if you were watching a film, this would be the part where the camera zooms in to these two people and focuses on the dialogue between Jesus and Peter. And this dialogue is the very heart of this passage. I want to make the case for that. So Jesus pulls Peter aside from the group and has a word with him. Perhaps they walk along the shore together, away from the group. I don't know, but he pulls them aside and they have a word together. And he asks him that famous question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, this name isn't the norm for Peter. It's Simon Peter, or it's Peter, the names Jesus himself had given him, if you recall. Remember, your name speaks of your identity and your calling in the scriptures, big time. So certainly if God himself is the one naming you, right? Right? So Jesus is now calling him by his former and old name, Simon, son of John. Why? Well, I think Jesus is asking Peter indirectly, or maybe just directly, about his identity and his loyalty. Will you return to your nets? Okay. Will you, who you used to be, or will you continue in following me? Jesus is highlighting a choice here for Peter. Who are you going to be? Are you going to be Simon, son of John, or are you going to be Peter, upon whom I'll build my church. So Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Let's deal with do you love me? It's very interesting. Uh, Two words for love are used throughout this passage, both agape, unconditional love, that's how we think of it, and phileo, uh, the love of, of friendship. Jesus and Peter both use both words here, and a lot has been made of the differences here of why do they use it here, why do they use this form here, but the fact is that agape and philea are used somewhat synonymously in this exchange. In John's gospel, both words are used of the father's love for Jesus. Both words are used for Jesus's love for Lazarus. And both words are used for the father's love of the disciples. Okay, so do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these. What does these refer to? Well, we got two options. Okay? It's either the boats and the fishing gear and all that uh, uh, of Peter's old life. It's either that or it's the other disciples. So if it's the net and the boats and all that, then the question gets at the heart of discipleship. What do you love most? What have you left uh, behind to follow Jesus? Because we always leave something behind to follow Jesus. But I, think, I don't think that's it. I think the point Jesus is trying to make here of, Do you love me more than these, uh, if Peter loves him more than the other disciples, I think that's more accurate. I say this because Peter, as Peter is, has been the boldest in his claims about Jesus. He's been the most outspoken, okay? I'll never betray you, right? And Peter had boasted that while the others might fall away, would he? No, he would not. I will not. I'll never betray you. So more than these, I think, refers to the other disciples, and Peter's been so bold in his uh, I'm not going to betray you, Lord, that I think that's why, what this refers to. Now, Jesus continues to probe Peter and ask him this variation of that same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, let's do some basic math. Uh, how many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three. Three. How many times does Jesus ask the question? Three. You think this was intentional on Jesus's part? Yes, absolutely it was. And by the third time, it smarts, it cuts to the quick, and it grieves Peter. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And in Peter's third reply, the word for know is different than in his first couple of responses. It's a deep knowing he's speaking of. To know something more fully, to know something with your whole heart. Peter's making a case here. I- I'm devoted to you, Jesus. I, I love you. you. You know this deep knowing. Jesus is speaking into Peter's calling here. If you love me, then feed my sheep. If you love me, then shepherd the flock. If you love me, then tend to them. He's already given Peter and the disciples the keys of the kingdom, the power to bind and to loose. Think about that. He's made Peter the rock on whom I'll build my church. The community has already been established. In a sense, and Peter has been given authority of a particular kind, so Jesus is speaking directly into Peter's calling, are you ready to be a shepherd to my flock? Are you ready to be a shepherd to the sheep, Peter? Jesus heightens the choice and deepens the call, which he is a master of. He heightens the choice, deepens the call. Can I trust you with my church, Peter? Who are you going to be? Are you going to be Simon, son of John? Or you're gonna be Peter, the rock and the shepherd. I've named you and called you to be. Now, this passage is often called the recommissioning of Peter, or the reinstatement of Peter, and that's completely accurate. And it is restorative. Notice how redemptive this passage is. Peter's restored, all's forgiven, all is made well. But his restoration, ouch, it's painful. His restoration is painful. This part of the journey, this part of the conversation was not fun for Peter at all, but it's necessary because redemption is the point. So Jesus goes straight into the heart of things. I say this because I don't know about you, but when I encounter growth and change, they're almost always uncomfortable, almost always. You can't follow Jesus and stay the same. Change and growth and transformation are part of being and becoming a disciple of Jesus, part of following him, right? Now, if you prioritize stability, if you avoid change like the plague, in other words, oh, goodness, I'm I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you're going to be wrestling with God your whole life. You will. Growth and transformation and change are by nature uncomfortable and sometimes painful. In this case, it is. But God has a redemptive heart here. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. We see that here with Peter and Jesus in their exchange. It is uncomfortable and painful. Peter stretches Peter here. Big time. But it is unto redemption. Always. God doesn't put you through this stuff just for giggles, okay? It's unto redemption and restoration. The good shepherd, Jesus, is teaching Peter how to be one too. He's teaching him how to be one, be one too. Think back on John 20, 21. Jesus had said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Peter is being commissioned here. He's being commissioned. Shepherds are soon going to be needed because Jesus is not going to be on the earth a whole lot longer until his ascension, okay? That's coming. Jesus knows this. Jesus is making sure his sheep will be in good hands. Peter will act as a shepherd in Jesus' absence, yet obviously the lambs still belong to God. But we uh, shepherd in the meantime in God's stead. Now, Peter grasps what Jesus is after here. He gets it. He gets it, so much so that he later exhorts others to do the same. Listen to 1 Peter 5. This is what shows me he gets it. He he exhorts us to be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, serving as overseers, and skipping down a little bit later. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter caught what Jesus was teaching him in this exchange. Jesus asks if Peter will show his love for him by caring for the flock. Peter answers these questions ultimately with how he lives out the rest of his life. That's his yes, a faithful life lived. Get to verses 18 and 19, and this will be really brief, this section. The passage winds down with a pretty enigmatic phrase. Uh, You know, Peter, when you're young, essentially you're autonomous. You can do what you want to do. But when you're older, uh, you won't be able to do what you want to do. You'll be led where you don't want to go. And this is an allusion to Peter's crucifixion. Peter was crucified head down, tradition holds, in the mid-60s A.D. One author says this, If a shepherd is to lay down his life for the sheep, then the corollary to Peter's recommissioning is martyrdom. So these verses speak of how and why Peter will die as a shepherd in service of the flock because of his love for Jesus Christ. And the passage ends with Jesus saying those familiar old words follow me, follow me. The words that Jesus spoke when the first disciples uh, came on board years prior follow me, follow me, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of people, fishers of men. That initial call, okay, that had to trigger his memory. Peter had answered such a call, uh, such a call at the outset, but Jesus is making sure Peter understands what this means, okay? Take up your cross. Feed the flock, guard them with your life, for that is what a good shepherd does. And in this way, Peter is recommissioned and called again into deeper service. Okay, let's take a step back here. Uh, I spoke about tide when I began, and I'm really big on the fact that tide is not just Easter Sunday. It's not just one day, okay? woo one day, and then we move on. We don't just continue on after the resurrection as if nothing has happened and business as usual. So the question I ask myself, and I pose to you as well, during Eastertide is, what does resurrection life look like? What does resurrection life look like in my life? What does resurrection life look like in your life? What does resurrection life look like in our collective life as King of Kings? It's a good question for Eastertide, right? It's not bad. It allows us to keep holding on to uh, the resurrection and the truths of it without moving forward too quickly or too glibly past that. Now, what does resurrection life look like? For Peter, (laughs) it was rather painful. It was rather, it was a pretty big ouch, a necessary reorientation. Resurrection life, i.e., doesn't always look tremendously victorious, okay? In Peter's case, it didn't, but it was. It was redemptive. But Peter's calling, look how clear it is made here. All is forgiven. And Jesus asked him again, will you still follow me. There is a deeper ask that goes on here. A deeper ask of Peter. This is who you were, Simon, son of John. But this is who I've called you to be, Peter, the rock upon whom I'll build my church. And your call is to love me, to feed and shepherd my flock. Or if you prefer our Acts reading today, you were Saul. Now that you've met the resurrected Jesus, you're Paul. Go to Ananias, you'll be told what to do, how to follow me. A deeper ask, okay? There's a deeper ask, and I think that extends to us, okay? Let's not get too distant from Peter. Peter's call is our call, okay? Peter's call is our call. Like Peter, given what God has revealed to you in this season of your life, will you be faithful to it, right? That's the deeper ask, really. And will you continue to follow me to the very end? That's the deeper call. So we'll end here. Jesus issues with just a few questions. Jesus issues a deeper ask and seeks a deeper call from our lives. He wants a deeper yes from us, doesn't he? Same from Peter. So here's a few questions. Uh, How and where is God seeking to deepen your call? I presume God is trying to grow all of us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, so if that's the case, your call becomes sharper and sharper uh, as we move through this great journey. So how and where is God seeking to deepen your call? That's one, okay? Um, Maybe another way to look at it. uh, Where is he asking you to step forward in faith? Where's he asking you to step forward in faith? To trust him more deeply with your life, okay? More deeply. And also, uh, how can you follow him all the more closely in this season of resurrection, i.e., Let's not leave Eastertide too soon, folks. Let's live in the resurrection. Let's really let that grip us and get a hold of us, okay? So how can you follow him all the more closely in the season of resurrection? Jesus issues a deeper ask and seeks a deeper call from our lives, a deeper yes. My prayer is that we may answer him with the whole of our lives as Peter ultimately did. Amen? Amen. All right.